few years ago when I was in seminary, I was talking with a group of friends one day, and one of them raised the most profound theological question, the most just esoteric question. They asked, is God fast or is God slow? Is God fast or is God slow? I don't even remember who I was talking to. I don't even remember where we were. But for some reason, that question has stuck with me all these years. And I remember that in the moment, my feeling was, after hearing that question, was God wants to move fast, right? But when we step back a little bit as we, as we, as we stare at that question, we remember that this God that we talk about and preach and know and walk with is outside of the constraints of time. Scripture tells us that a thousand years is as a day to the Lord, and a day is as a thousand years. So there's this mystery about God. He is other. He is different than us and our constraints. But even as we look at our lives and our experiences, this question feels pretty subjective, doesn't it? In some areas of the world, like areas that we've been praying about where the gospel, the good news of Jesus seems to be spreading rapidly, it feels like God is on the move and quickly. In other places, perhaps like our own culture in this, as some call it, a post-Christian culture in which we live in, it can feel slow. It can feel like dribs and drabs at times. Or it can feel subjective person to person. Sometimes you may feel like you're in, a, you're in a very dry place. You don't feel connected to God. You feel sort of ineffective. You're not seeing the types of breakthroughs that you're hoping for while your friend is experiencing all of it, is growing, is finding healing, is being used by God in mighty ways. So it's different person to person. My point with this is to say that it's, it's hard to say absolutely how fast God moves or how slow God moves or how fast he intends to move. It's a mystery to us. But I want to say this morning, when it comes to making disciples, when it comes to this thing, this great opportunity that we've been talking about, this, this mission of coming alongside of others to help them in their spiritual journey, We don't always have clues with regard to how fast. But I think we do have clues with regard to how. How does God move? What are the pathways? What are the means? I want to suggest a few pathways, if you will, this morning that are timeless. These are tried and true. God has consistently seemed to use these things. Again, we're talking about a great opportunity that we have. We're talking about helping others in their spiritual journey. And I think our text for this morning captures three of these pathways beautifully. Three of these things through which God seems to want to move. And so in terms of the how... First, I want to show this morning that God uses generational discipleship. 
generational discipleship. Another pathway in our text is that God uses courageous discipleship. And then a third one that we'll look at is that God uses exponential discipleship. And I think if we really lean into these modes, these pathways, if we order our lives and our days and we get on board with these things, that God is going to use us in mighty ways in this world. As we consider this, let us first pray. Lord, we look to you. We thank you that you have called us partners with you in ministry. God, thank you for this great opportunity. Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would stir whatever it is you intend for us this morning and give us courage to live it out. We know that you are on the move, God. We don't always know how and why things happen, but Lord, we look to these trusted pathways and help us to live them out. Help us now, Lord, as we consider your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, God uses generational discipleship. And this this theme begins subtly right at the beginning of our passage that we're looking at this morning. Because we note what Paul says. Paul is writing this letter to his protege, Timothy, a leader that he had trained and poured his life into. And Paul quickly, at the very beginning in verse 3, he mentions his forefathers who also served God. But Paul, as we know, would say that all the hopes and the longings of those forefathers of his were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, this one that Paul had encountered and this one that commissioned him in ministry. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the fullest revelation of all of the longings of his forefathers were fulfilled. But even with that being said, Paul recognizes that his own faith, his own walk is built on that of previous generations. So it starts with Paul. But then the focus switches to Timothy. Again, Paul's protege in ministry. Timothy is a key leader in the church. And notice what Paul says in verse 5. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. I think it's so cool as we look at Scripture, these, these individuals who are enshrined forever for us in God's Word, these faithful people, faithful Lois, Faithful Eunice, faithful women who are intentional to pass along faith to the next generation. But the reality is that they probably may have faced some challenges in that. In Acts 16, we see where Paul first meets Timothy. And it's on this missionary journey that Paul is on, this second so-called missionary journey. And he describes Timothy as the following, as a disciple whose mother was a Jewess and a believer and whose father was a Greek. So what seems to be happening is that not everybody was on the same page spiritually in that household. Paul's father was likely a non-believer. And so he may have been on a different page. And yet, Lois and Eunice faithfully bringing Timothy up in the faith. 
What did that look like? Well, later in this exact same letter in chapter three, Paul notes that Timothy had been immersed in God's word, immersed in the scriptures from infancy. So they trained him and brought him up in God's word. But faith transference generation to generation isn't always automatic, is it? Sometimes the next generation just doesn't seem to exhibit the same love for Jesus or love for his church. Maybe you've experienced some some sadness over that. Seeing others walk away from the faith, seeing their faith fade, seeing their connection to the church loosen. And that's difficult. And of course, we pray for God's spirit to just rekindle what was there. But even as we see that, we still are called to invest in generational discipleship, setting up the next generation as best we are able for a life of faith. I want to just get a quick visual of how important this is in the room. And so if if for you it was a biological parent or grandparent or, or perhaps an adoptive parent whose home you grew up in, if, if it was those people who were most formative for you in your faith journey, I want you to raise a hand. A parent, a grandparent, an adoptive parent who was maybe not the one who led you to faith, but who's been the most spiritually significant. Okay, so a good number in the room. And that's my story, too. Parents faithfully brought us to church. You know, not perfect people, but you know, really raised us in faith. And that's a gift. But we recognize that it doesn't always pass down that way. And so raise your hand if it wasn't biological family. It wasn't parents. It wasn't grandparents. It wasn't adoptive parents whose home you grew up in. If it was somebody outside of your family or your immediate home who was most spiritually significant for you, I want you to raise your hand. A friend, a neighbor, a good number as well. So God whether it's biological or spiritual mothers and fathers that God brings into our life, this is a significant pathway that God uses. So the question then, as we think about the next generation, is how are we engaging the scriptures with younger people, our kids, our grandkids, whoever, How are we teaching them to pray? How are we praying for them? How are we modeling a life of faith? How are we sharing about our own experiences with God? What he is saying to us and how we are living it out. How are we having conversations with them to help them navigate this world and stay grounded? On this topic, some in the room may have felt like you missed it. Like you dropped the ball. Like you missed the great opportunity. And if you're feeling that way, I want to say to you that it's never too late. It's never too late. It might feel a little unnatural at first, but, but maybe God is saying, step out in faith and offer to pray for that person. Right then. Say, hey, you know, I, I, I got an insight reading the Bible the other day. Can I share it with you? Or, hey, th- this is what I feel like God is saying to me in this season. Can I share it with you? See how God uses that. It's never too late. 
So the first point is that God uses generational discipleship, generation to generation. It's generational discipleship that prepared Timothy to be a partner in the gospel, to, a, to be a major leader in the church of Christ. And all of us in the room have some part to play in that. But secondly, God uses courageous discipleship. Timothy faced some challenges Timothy faced some challenges of leadership, challenges in the church that he was called to lead in Ephesus, where he was. He had to contend with false, wacky teachers, people that wanted to infiltrate that community with a false gospel, a false message. And so Paul gives him a little pastoral kick in the pants. What does Paul say to him? Paul says in verse 6, For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paul then says, Timothy, you've not been given a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, self-discipline. For Timothy, that was his by faith. That is yours by faith. Sometimes we need a little kick in the pants. But Paul not only encourages Timothy to stand firm in leadership and shepherding that church, he calls him to embrace his sufferings. In verse 8, Paul says, don't be ashamed to preach the gospel. Don't be ashamed of this message of Christ crucified. And he says, don't be ashamed of me either. Paul, this messenger, apostle of the gospel. Because the point is that the gospel has always tripped people up. This message has always tripped people up. 1 Corinthians 1.23 says that Christ crucified, the centerpiece of the gospel, was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. There's people in our world still who find this absurd, unbelievable. And in some ways it is. Until the Spirit of God peels away pride, self-righteousness, self-reliance so that we can respond in faith. And Paul says, don't, don't give up on me, Timothy. People were getting over, upset at times over Timothy's association with Paul. Paul was a sort of a liability at times because there Paul is in prison writing this letter. People are saying, what sort of apostle is he? Look, look how he turned out, chained up for this message of Jesus. Paul says to Timothy, don't give up on me. Claim me. You followed me as I followed Christ, so don't don't turn back now. And what does he say in verse 8? Join with me in suffering for the gospel. How? By the power of God. Friends, if we want to grow as disciples personally, and if we want to help others grow as disciples, we will follow Christ in his sufferings. I want to say at this point that whenever we start reflecting on the sufferings of Christ, it's worth noting that my sufferings, your sufferings, aren't often what we see in the Bible. Maybe they are. And there's certainly Christians living in hostile parts of the world whose experiences are are similar, imprisonment, beatings, threats, death. 
But our experience is sometimes different in our comfortable experience. And so we can feel a bit of a, I, I confess to you that I feel a bit of a disconnect sometimes when I look at this in the Bible. But just because we may feel that does not mean that we are exempt from suffering and sacrificed, exempt from a costly life following Jesus. For Paul and Timothy and some of these other characters we read about, it did look like persecution. It did look like mistreatment. And maybe it has looked like that for you. As you follow Christ and live in obedience to his word, maybe you have faced ridicule. Maybe you've been discredited at work. You know, how can she believe those myths? Or, you know, I know that he's not willing to do whatever it's going to take to get this sale, so I don't want him on my team. Or how come he never joins us for the nightly entertainment while we're on the business trip? Or why in the world would you use your personal time in that city serving the poor? Don't you know it's dangerous there? Don't you know it's dirty? Maybe you've experienced that. For others of us in the room, identifying with Christ and his sufferings can be more subtle. But this life requires sacrifice. Maybe a sacrifice of your time. Maybe a sacrifice of your to-do list to invest in a neighbor, invest in people, get to know stories, Maybe inviting a coworker to lunch rather than just eating at your desk. It can look a lot of ways. Taking your kid out on the weekend rather than just sneaking in a couple extra hours at the office. Carving out time in the midst of your schedule to walk with and invest in relationships with a small group or a discipleship group that will help you grow and stay accountable. There's no shame, there's no condemnation in what I'm saying in the picture I'm painting, but I just commend to you and encourage you to ask God, what does sacrifice look like for me? What does suffering look like for me? In our busy world, we have to be intentional to carve out time out of obedience to Christ. You might be faced to sacrifice professional advancement. You might have to forgo really tempting opportunities because God is saying stay and be faithful. An obvious, what I'll call entry-level sacrifice to be a disciple might be your money. God warns against greed and against stinginess and the Bible calls us to generosity. Generosity to the church, generosity to ministries, generosity to people in need. But friends, it's not a sacrifice without hope. It's not a sacrifice without a vision that will drive it. What do I mean? Notice what Paul says in verse 12. This is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed And I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. 
Paul knew that God guarded his salvation, his calling, his faith. Paul knew that he was secure in Christ. Paul had encountered the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He knew it was true. And so he was willing to lay down his life and do whatever it took. We too can accept whatever costs may come, even the very loss of our lives, because we have experienced God, or we can experience God, and eternity is secure with him. So again, friends, first, God uses generational discipleship, mothers, fathers, grandparents, spiritual mothers, fathers, spiritual grandparents, to invest in the next generation so that they may know. He also uses courageous discipleship because it's only by embracing our suffering, embracing sacrifice, that we will grow and help make disciples. But friends, finally, God uses exponential discipleship. Exponential discipleship. We turn to verses 13 and 14 in chapter 2 for this. Paul first explains his reasons for confidence, and then he says, Would you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Picking up in chapter 2, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will be qualified to teach others. There's a pattern here. There's a pattern of passing along knowledge, understanding, experience. There's this calling to replicate what you have in others. Replicate faith and discipleship in others. And all of this, this this picture that we're painting here is consistent with Jesus' way. Matthew 28, the great commission that we look to often, Jesus says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then notice this, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Jesus says, pass along my teaching, my ways, my ministry, my example, but not only like transfer knowledge, help others to follow, help others to obey as well. But the point for us this morning is that with Paul and with Jesus, it's strategic. What do I mean by that? In the case of Paul, he went around starting all these churches, these movements, but then he had to strategically entrust others, particular leaders, with those churches. And so he strategically chose Timothy. And Jesus himself modeled this. This targeted strategic investment because he chose a few disciples to pour his life into. In the Gospels, we have as much, if not more, of Jesus' just private interactions with his disciples, with his followers, as we do Jesus preaching to crowds like this. And then even when there are those crowd moments, there's those sidebar conversations with the disciples where he is training them teaching them, 
all the time. So for three years of his public ministry, Jesus invested his life into a few men, into women who accompanied as well. This little book here called The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. This was required reading for me back in my college ministry days. And I love how it's little. Don't you like little books? Anybody else? Um, but this, the words are small, actually. But in any case, great read, kind of a classic. And Robert Coleman says this about Jesus' master plan. He says, Jesus concentrated on those who were to be the beginning of this leadership. Though he did what he could to help the multitudes, he had to devote himself primarily to a few men rather than to the masses so that the masses could at last be saved. This was the genius of his strategy, he says. The argument here is that because of our limitations, you're limited, I'm limited, we can't replicate ourselves in everybody, can we? We can't do a quality investment in everybody but we can in a few if we're intentional. And then the other piece is that this worked for the Son of God, this worked for a Jesus, and so it can work for us as a strategy to reach the world. Friends, if we want to be disciples who make disciples, God may call us to be targeted. God may call us to be strategic He may call us to think more quality over quantity, deeper rather than wider. It may mean committing to walk with someone over a long period of time. Some people are wired, it seems, to want to know everyone and do everything. Maybe that's you. Others are quite content to know no one and do nothing. But to both of those camps, there's a challenge here this morning. Maybe God is saying, hey, commit to love and teach and mentor some kids or teenagers for 8, 10, 15 years. We have volunteers in our church that do just that. And it's inspiring. Or or maybe it's, hey, find one or two other guys or one or two other ladies and just just set up a regular rhythm of meeting with them and praying and holding each other accountable to a life of holiness and to mission. There's different possibilities. This can look like lots of different things. But how might God be calling you to invest in a few? As we obey Christ to be wholehearted disciples who love God and love others, we will inevitably replicate ourselves in others who will then do the same for the sake of the kingdom. As we wrap up this series, this great opportunity series that we've been in, we've, been, we've given you some new language, some new ideas, some new challenges perhaps. This painting this picture of how God wants to use all of us to reach the world. Maybe God is highlighting one of these pathways for you this morning. Or maybe God is calling you into a path of obedience that will hit on all three of these. But parents, grandparents, spiritual mothers and fathers, those that God is raising up, maybe there's an opportunity to really recommit to invest in the next generation helping them learn God's word, helping them learn to pray, sharing your experiences of faith with them.
knowing that it's never too late. It's never too late. Keep at it. Maybe God is calling you to courage this morning. Maybe there's some level of sacrifice or suffering that God is inviting you into with faith. Maybe think about it rather as an offering. Maybe it's not just a sacrifice, but it's an offering of time, of energy, of relationship. Maybe it's living and acting in such a way that makes it evident to the world that you love Jesus and you're committed to his word and then accepting whatever cost may come. Or finally, maybe it's exponential. Maybe God is saying, don't seek to be well-connected. Seek to connect well. Don't just seek to know a lot of people, but seek to know and really be known by a few. Seek to grow deeper in me and help others do the same. Friends, as we wrap this up, I'm confident as we live into these pathways that God has provided for us in his word, that he will use us in mighty ways in this great opportunity. Let us pray. God, give us faith. Give us courage. I pray that this word would not fall away, but that you would help each of us find the path of obedience. Lord, we look to you. We love you. We thank you for calling us friends and calling us into partnership with you by your spirit. So give us courage as your people, knowing that we will fail. We will not always get it right. We will doubt, but that you are with us and you have greater things for us. I pray your blessing on each one here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.